The Outlet. The Talk of Southland. Welcome to The Outlet. This podcast is produced by the Southland app, where you can find the latest local news, sport and event info, plus real estate, local weather, where to eat, drink, stay and shop, plus lots more. Make sure you download the Southland app from the App Store and Google Play. After 52 years of working with Tuatata at the Southland Museum, Senior Living Species Officer Lindsay tells us how it all got underway for him, some of the amazing discoveries he made along the way, and the success of the Tuatata breeding program. Can you please tell me about your experience working with Tuatata at the Southland Museum and how your interest all got started? You've got a few errors, have you? <laughs> no, when I was a schoolboy, Southland Boys High, what attracted to me the museum, I was actually a teenager when the Apollo program was starting, the lunar landings, and I followed the Gemini in the, in the development of the technology before the landing. So I had a real passion for space. And uh, I was also a very keen artist at Boys High, and uh, I used to do sort of surrealistic sort of planetary landscapes. And uh, to get critiquing on those, I actually took them to the museum. Um, I eventually did join the Art Society there. And uh, the, the staff there saw my talent. I became a volunteer. And uh, after the moon landings, there was actually a moon rock exhibition coming to Southland back in the 70s. I volunteered in the weekends. The director, Arthur McKenzie, at that time invited me to come and help out. And he reckoned there's a, it's an exciting sort of life in a museum environment. And uh, I was a bit of a jack of all trades. My father was a builder and I sort of handy with my hands with uh, building things. In fact, when I was at school, instead of um, studying for school cert, I was in a wee back shed, all dustproof, grinding and polishing, building my own telescope, grinding the optics for it. So that's the degree of passion I had for the astronomy. But um, I volunteered in the museum, and uh, we had the two tower upstairs in the Natural History Gallery at that point. As a kid, up in the Dipton, I'm a Diptonite, born and bred. Father built the Reading Milk Bar up there, and uh, our family grew up there, and I came to town when I was about nine. But in the Hokanui Hills, you're in a paradise for herpetology with the lizards and skinks. And as a wee five or six-year-old, I used to wander around the hills catching lizards. My dad had a great big glass house, and we used to keep the lizards. I kept the lizards in the glass houses, sort of terrarium stuff. And uh, frogs and tadpoles, most country kids sort of go through that phase of catching tadpoles and watching the, the, the metamorphosis of the tadpole frog stage. So I had all those background sort of interests which Arthur saw in me. I just became a sheer... Um, she had the husbandry keeping mostly breeding the mice for the darn tuatara. Back then there's very little to no knowledge on how to keep tuatara. All we knew is that they ate seabirds, didn't realise they ate mostly insects. We bred the mice in the museum. So every weekend, Sunday I used to go there, work in the museum, polish the floors, clean the brass on the old binnacle at the doorway. We had um, saltwater aquarium in the doorway and used to have to go to bluff, catch shrimps and sucker fish and all this sort of things. We did this for a couple of years. And in 1972, an opening happened. They offered me a position permanent. Whole $30 a week was my wage back then, <laughs> which wasn't a lot. But yeah, the whole museum and uh, the staff were always undervalued. Museums have always been under-resourced, so it's a love job for those that do it mostly. So from there, I actually went in as a museum trainee. And if you look at some of the early newspaper clippings, I quickly became promoted to a museum attendant. <laughs> Part of that was just looking after the tour town. There's only two at the time. And I thought, wow, there's some real challenges here because the more I asked questions about what you do, no one could tell me. 
We didn't have Department of Conservation back then. The Internal Affairs Wildlife Department were the, the guardians of the New Zealand's wildlife at that stage. We had them indoors and we thought, well, to get them breeding, we've got to get them in an outdoor enclosure. So in 1974, an outdoor enclosure was built. We actually did it for a couple of thousand dollars. The prison boys actually um, did all the labour and built it for us. And we put the tuatari out into that, thinking that's where we'll get the breeding gut. But unfortunately, the, the combinations that we had, Henry Lee and Mildred at that time, did not get on. And I sort of theorised a wee bit too, because when we were dipping, we had lots of hens. And uh, to, for animals to breed, there's got to be a sort of a threat to the genetics. And uh, for Henry, I thought, well, if you're going to live for two or three hundred years, why waste your energy breeding if there's no threat to your genetics? So I had this sort of theory. And also with the new enclosure, I wanted to try and replicate the, the natural environment. So I managed to work uh, with internal affairs and uh, link up with Don Newman, the wildlife scientist that checked Stephen's island out on a regular basis. So in 1980, I got to trip to Stevens Island with the, the view of actually experiencing the environment so we recreate a natural habitat back here in Southland. But my politics behind it was to get to know the guy and convince him of my theory that we need more than one male. Because the, there's only uh, the policy of the time for tuatara to captivity was one peer per institution. And at that point in the 70s, no tuatara really that I know of were breeding in a, in a colony sort of situation. What breeding that had happened at that point where females, often in the offices when they captured the tuatara, looked for a nice, really fat, round females, which was an indicator they were carrying eggs. And those females have come back to captivity and laid their eggs and hatched. So those institutions have sort of boasted, oh, we've had tuatara breeding. But in South and here, we've done the full hog. The boys have had to get to know the girls, shout them coffee, spending money, and do the whole process. <laughs> so we're, I sort of claim one of the first sort of breeding ones, but... It may be questionable if other institutions have, but it hasn't been documented. But my main claim to fame with the tuatara is tuatara are described as biologically unique in that they don't breed annually. In 1974, with the new enclosure outdoors, we realised very quickly that it was too cold. Stephanie actually died in the enclosure after about within three years. And we're experiencing um, minus 10, minus 8 degrees. The whole ground was permafrosted. That was the result of her demise so we put a roof over that outdoor one and controlled it a lot better and after visiting the wildlife department and returning with we had uh within what within a couple of three months we had an additional pair of tuatara arrive so we we got our second male to create that jealousy and the program never looked back from that point as far as the breeding and the behaviors go from that we sort of knew the tuatara's maximum breeding was every two years so to optimise any breeding success, what I did was every year I grabbed the females, the two females we had at the time, took them to the Fleming Jensen, was the old vet then, and then Sandy took over that role, Sandy Cooper from Alice Road, and uh, we'd X-ray the females for eggs. If the eggs were ready, they'd show up as nice wee round shells inside the tum, up to 12, 14 eggs. Based on the science of the biennial breeding, once every two years, if I got eggs, I'd bring them in, we're one of the pioneers of using oxytocin to also induce tuatara because Mildred was egg-bound at one stage. The eggs weren't coming, mainly because I was holding her in a holding box and she's too stressed to lay them. So this was all part of that learning curve. And uh, we ended up being the first to ever use oxytocin to induce a tuatara. And they still use oxytocin on women today. So here's 150 million years of evolution. A modern drug still works on the receptors of something so ancient. So we did the oxytocin and within a couple of hours, the girls would pop out their eggs and then I'd control them in an artificial incubation process. Initially I was using soil. No one could tell me in the 1980s what 
moisture content would be required. So the first lot of eggs I had was all excitement about the potential of them. Nearly a year gone by, they'd expanded, they grow. Toto eggs are uh, sort of leather shells and they absorb moisture and actually grow in size up to two, three hundred percent of the original laid size. These eggs started to show wee beads of moisture and then think they would eat all soft and I thought, holy cow, what the hell's going on here? The last four eggs all did that same sort of sweating and then went, son, oh, shit, there's something wrong. So I cut them open, cut the eggs open to see if I could help them. And uh, the little embryos were just full of albium choke. They're just drowning in their own albium. They didn't get out of the egg, all beautifully formed, but they had died. So that was a very frustrating time. So I asked questions everywhere and I got put on, wildlife put me onto a guy called Bill Dorbin in Australia who reputed to have had to retire and he used to visit the islands and he'd done a lot of work on them. And I spoke with Bill Dorbin and he said, well, he sort of experienced similar things with turtles who've laid their eggs in, in the on the high tide line and they've had a spring tide come through just prior to hatching. The turtles actually died and he wondered if it was because there's too much moisture in the eggs it suggested that I... I lessened the moisture content in the eggs. So I waited another two years for the next round of eggs. <laughs> so this time I kept the eggs a lot. I wanted the egg weight. He also indicated that the eggs very rarely go over 13, 14 grams. And my first lot of eggs that I raised went to 18 grams, which was definitely indicating there's far too much moisture there. Cut a long story short, I got the first result. I had about four or five wee eggs hatched. And their eggs were hatching at about 14 grams, 13 grams. So once the eggs got to that size, I left the lid off the container so the moisture vaporised. So I just manipulated manually how to control that moisture content. And after that, yeah, we had eggs every two years. And in 1990, we built the, the new museum. For a whole year, I had about 21 to a tower in my home on uh, Sydney Street upstairs. And I had red light glowing all the time just to keep them active and warm. I don't know what my neighbours were thinking, but I didn't, it had to be my best kept secret. For a whole year, we had these two tower there until the museum completed its redevelopment in 1990. When we demolished the old museums for the redevelopment and we're demolishing the two tower, we found more bloody eggs. And I counted for all the eggs on the two years phase. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? So... Instead of identifying and x-raying once every two years, I'll do them in the off year. Sure enough, they had eggs. For about five or six years, the females were laying eggs every year, which is totally unheard of. And my temperatures in the New Museum facing north were much warmer. The outdoor one we built initially in 74 was on the west side of the museum. They didn't get the sun until two or three o'clock in the afternoon, so they didn't get a lot of warmth from the environment. So this extra warmth, metabolically sort of kicked them into action. Uh, if they're warmer, being cold-blooded, they eat more food, more protein left over, and more likely to reproduce. So for a five-year period, I took all the maximum and minimum temperatures, and my mean temperature in the tour time was about 17 degrees, whereas on Stevens Island, Takapurwewa, where the Henry Lucy Mildred come from, it was only 9 or 10 degrees. So by elevating all those temperatures up, they thrive. I think, in Tuatau case, global warming might be useful to them. And they're not silly. They actually sort of know the environments they need. They, they choose the nesting sites. They dig burrows, smell, sniff. There's a whole lot of behaviours all associated. They have instinctive behaviours that will allow them to choose the right site, providing they've got the options. Yeah, Some islands might be rock-bound and no substrates and can't get away from the sun. They potentially could be at risk. But otherwise... They've been around for millions of years, these guys. They've seen glacial and interglacials, so they're survivors. That's a quick overview on my journey. And in the 1990 enclosure, I really struggled a lot with the environment. We, as Once the breeding kicked in, when our females started to show long bone demineralization, which is a sign of a chronic calcium deficiency. Uh, some of the eggs eventually started to sort of fail. 
you know, to do horrific stuff to try and save them. Uh, the babies often, when I handled them for their plunk session, had sort of wee spasms, like a titanic spasm. And being raised on farms, I likened it to sleeping sickness in sheep, staggers. And I thought, well, this is a chronic calcium deficiency when they're feeding their lambs. Made the similarity, and I questioned to Fleming the vet at the time, and he said, yeah, well, could well be. We haven't got the, the natural lighting. It went through a special acrylic, well, it was just a, a fiberglass roof at that point. He gave me some liquid calcium. And uh, when I had some eggs do that sweating again and start to fail, I cut them open. They were still alive. And I didn't pulled the wee tail out of the egg and I was injecting about 0.2 cc of calcium into the wee baby tuatara and then putting them back in the, in the incubation box. And blow me down, they survived. I had about seven or eight of them showed these failings and I injected them and they all lived, which is a bit of a bloody miracle, really. So in recognising that, if any animal did have a spasm, I gave them a wee liquid, a wee, this calcium shot is about a 10% solution of calcium liquid and they've all survived. So got a lottery commissions grant at one stage and I bought special technology for measuring ultraviolet light, UVA and B, and we confirmed that they were getting no UV. And the UV lighting at that time we bought, which we thought were supplementing the, the UV from the natural, was not working. More than two or three hundred millimetres away from the bulb, you would receive no UV. And we had the bulbs hung about two metres above the ground, which is just like a waste of time. So I lowered the bulbs and it really worked on trying to get a new roof. We had a, a local uh, plumber come to the party. He's anonymous, he didn't want to be known, but he donated $18,000 to purchase the acrylic. The IRT and the community trust covered the cost for the installation. And uh, since that point, I've never had to touch a to a tower, intervene. Everything has been happening so naturally. It's, a, it's amazing. And probably from all that, and initially with the breeding, we probably about 70 odd animals gone to different institutions around New Zealand. My passion behind the whole thing was not only just to save the species, but being in a museum, you, you, you work with the past and to understand the future, have a good understanding of the past really helps you make good decisions going forward. And particularly in environmental conditions, when you look in south around the south, we had a lot of the um, tuatara jawbones in the sand hills all around from uh, Wakapatua around the Catlins area, and um, evidence on offshore islands off Rakiora, native island. We had a, a mummified tuatara bought in the museum in 1945, which probably wouldn't have been more than 10, 20 years dead. So they lived there right up past the 1900s. There's also a Captain Fairchild who used to skipper the Stella with the, a lighthouse service boat, collected to a tower from a brother's island down at the bottom of Stuart Island. And he took them in the Targo, uh, Targo Witness, have a wee article in the 1870s making reference to the two tower that were, came from Captain Fairchild and were being kept in captivity in the Targo Museum. So there's all this little history and I thought, well, if they lived here, why can't we get them back? So my passion was to breed the hell out of these guys and do southern restorations. And the local iwi were right behind me on it all. And back when I was doing the museum, we all did our own thing. There's Russell, myself and Michael were sort of the hardcore 1970s staff. I just had free reins to do what I wanted just to get the results in the Tuatara. And my board at the time totally supported me. And uh, I bred all these Tuatara but unfortunately, we have to sort of work with other um, stakeholders on all this. It's not just about my ideas. So the, the breeding that happened initially got transferred to other centres rather than my idea of going to offshore islands. And I became part of the Tuatara Recovery Group in the 1970s to sort of develop husbandry and trying to get some long-term sort of strategies for the Tuatara. Victoria University of Wellington had done amazing work in the, actually the physiological and the, and the studies on Tuatara and ensuring their survival. 
from there, I still kept breeding, and when the museum closed, that was the, the real crunch period. Ngāti Kuata were recognised as the owners of the Atuatara because Stevens Island, Takapariwa, was taken off them in the 1900s. The, the ownership, the guardianship was just ignored. Evie's ownership was ignored. The Crown put a lighthouse keeper in there and built lighthouses, cleared half the bush off their island and basically took over the island. But there was a covenant in that clause when they took it off the iwi that if it was ever unmean, that that ownership be returned back to Ngāti Kuata. And uh, in 1995, that recognition happened because the modern science, they don't have the main lighthouses anymore and they have them all automated. So that act happened in 1995. But Ngāti Kuata probably sat quietly assessing their kaitiaki over the Tuatara in captivity. And when the museum closed, it gave them the opportunity to step in and say, hey guys, you, you haven't included us, our boards and their sort of management structure was ignorant to the fact of their ownership. And that mutual sort of respect has now built up. And to show our respect for Ngāti Kuata, the 70-odd Tuatara that I'd read up for potential southern um, restorations, Ngāti Kuata took them all back to a couple of islands up in their area in the Melbourne Sounds, which was a great outcome to have them go back to the wild. Oh, well, look, it's been so wonderful talking to you. Thank you so much. And, and again, thank you for all the work you've done for Tuatara in this country. Download the Southland app from the App Store or Google Play. Thanks for listening to The Outlet, the talk of Southland. The Outlet is produced and published by the Southland app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. The Outlet is available on the Outlet button of your Southland app and wherever you get your podcasts.